Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way and then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Garden Church Podcast. Hey man, good morning, Garden Church. What's up? We're here, caffeinated. I love it. Um, I'm excited to be with you this morning and preach. Uh, so let's let's just jump in. I, I was I'm just going to dive in. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs, is whether those who are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heavens into every corner of human existence. This is one of my favorite authors and spiritual formation gurus from Dallas Willard. He says the greatest issue is whether those who are identified as Christian will become disciples. I was this week uh, in a group and one of my friends said she's having a really hard time identifying as a Christian today. Like she has to apologize all the time with the way Christians have represented Jesus today. It's no wonder that more and more people are leaving the faith and don't want to have anything to do with Christianity as a whole. It's like what Gandhi said, I would 
be a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. Let that sink in for a moment. And yet, even with all of the struggles we see that we can name um, and the reality of this broad universal church that we are a part of that has been going on for 2,000 plus years, um, even as my friend struggles to connect as identifying herself as a Christian, uh, she shows up to church. You are here. We're here with all of the issues that are massive, with all of the problems we see as a community, we are a church, a church of broken humans, beggars, you could say, looking for some pieces of bread. And we just so happen to come together with the crumbs we've discovered along the way, trying to share what we have discovered. And that's what it means to be a church today, in my opinion. Now, we could critique the church because our generation with all of the mechanisms given to us, we think that everyone wants to know everything about us anyway. So we broadcast those opinions everywhere. We can deconstruct the institutions. We can deconstruct the institutional injustices that are both present now and throughout history. We can even talk about the current moral failures of leaders and pastors and institutional leadership that have failed to identify and live as an example of holiness and purity in the integrity of their roles. But rather than deconstruct our faith or try to point blame to the failures that we are seeing in this current moment of time, I want to invite you to do something far more compelling, something a little more interesting than what the rest of the world is doing today, which is pointing out the flaws. Why don't we build the alternative? I heard it said, the best critique of the bad is the practice of the good. Why not Resist the temptation of engaging in the critique of the pride, our body, his body, and instead offer the world something better. This is the task I feel I've been tasked with as a pastor, and I fail every week. It's like trying to be a better father than the father that I had. I fail all the time, and my kids hear me apologize every week which is why we take communion as a family, to remind ourselves of forgiveness. But rather than point out the flaws and continue to insist on the pain, why not try in this moment here and now to build something better? Are you with me? I'm not saying like, are you with me in this talk? Are you with me in the task of building a better future for the church? You guys good? Okay, so now that I got you, we're going to need to have a center, okay? Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to have something that's going to be a priority to you, and you're going to have something that's a priority to you, and then I'm going to have a priority. But I think we just need to agree on the center. Let's just agree on something that is, if we're going to build this kind of diverse community that's unified on mission to the ends of the earth, that looks better, that has more integrity, that's filled with life from heavens pouring out into the rest of human existence, then let us agree on one thing, and that's this as a church. This is what we're doing in this vision series. 
We're trying to offer you a center, a well that has Christ at the, the very center. And then from that well, let's, let's just gather close, as close as possible to the living water. And let's not get caught up in the peripheral issues. Because I, I can talk. So, is that outside? Is that up there? Okay. I was like, is somebody on the roof? Lord, like, I don't have the power to, but let's heal. Let's let the, we got extra seats. You don't need to break down the walls. We got some room. Here's the center we're trying to define as a church. We are one family living the way of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bringing life wherever we go. This is kind of the central um, belief that we think this is our mission. This is who we are as the Garden Church. And we're we're breaking it out over the the next four weeks. And um, so we're going to talk about what it means to be one family. It feels like it's a very prophetic thing to be a family in this moment of time. That has diversity, yet we're unified. That we could be liberal and conservative and unified. You can believe this about the scriptures or that about the scriptures, but the thing defining us is this, that we're a family of God together and we gotta figure it out. You can't choose your family. I wish I could. But I'm stuck with them. One of them works for the garden. (laughs) He's amazing. And I'm so grateful for him. He has been serving us faithfully since our, our, our transition in kids' ministry. He has been faithfully serving the kids' ministry every week, doing everything he can to keep this going. And you should say thanks to Brian. Brian has done an amazing job doing it. We have this center. And uh, just as a disclaimer, we're in this vision series. And if you would like more information, we've been building out this website that has all this information. It's gardenchurch.life. And on this website, you can go to various resources. You can go there right now. Gardenchurch.life has all these resources that will empower you to integrate this kind of philosophy of ministry into your own life as you become a resilient disciple. So enough of that. Let me begin with the subject of formation today. We're going to talk about this idea of living the way of Jesus. Have you thought about what God's hopes are for you being a disciple? I know it's hard to think about what God wants because our life is designed around what we want, isn't it? But have you ever paused to think, what are Jesus' expectations of my life? I often think about that. I know it sounds silly, but I often think, I wonder like if I arrive into heaven and heaven comes here and then I'm there and there's this party, it's epic. And, and then Jesus just shows me all this, this great, he's like, well done, my good and faithful service, servant. I hope I hear that. But I often think, I wonder if there's like this room, or this wing, I suppose. It's like, I have all this amazing stuff, but I wonder if there's like a section that could have been. But I was too focused, Right? I was too consumed with the things of this world, too obsessed with what people thought of me, too concerned about security that I didn't take that risk that he was inviting me into, but I was, I was filled with noise and I was so hurried in my everyday life that I missed the invitation that was gentle, like a butterfly landing on my shoulder and then going away. This whisper from God to, to move this direction with my family or move this direction in this sermon or move this direction in that prayer or move this direction at the coffee shop, but I just missed it because I was consumed with self. And I wonder if perhaps there's just this beautiful reflection of what could have been. I don't know. That's just my own posture. I can't name that theologically. I can't make a biblical case for that because all I know is whatever is given to me, I'm going to give it back to Jesus. That crown is going right back to him. But I often think about that. 
is there more? I can just, just pause. This isn't part of my sermon notes, but I just wonder, like, is this all there is to Christian community? Like, I, I, I keep reading scripture and, and I keep reading and, and, and he, reading historical accounts and I'm realizing there is so much more. I'm reading about early desert fathers and mothers and the stories they have of faithfulness throughout 500 plus years after Jesus and the things they saw. I have to have like a, a, an imagination from Disney to understand the, uh, the, what took place back then. It seems like a fairy tale. It's so foreign to my curated communal life. And I just, my heart is longing for more. I've been listening to this Maverick City song called The Real Thing. Anyone heard that one? It's like, I want the real thing. I keep singing this. Like I want, I've tasted, I've seen, I've experienced, but I want more. I want, I want a community that is beyond the comfort individualism that I see in the most communal environments in the church. There's more to it. I want a kind of faith that's unshakable. When, when I do lose the job or when the sickness does come or when that person says that email and it brings me down and makes me think of all the things I've done or when lots of people are thinking something about me and I can't justify myself, I want to have that kind of faith that remains firm and rejoices in the trial. How did you get there, James? How could you say such a thing? I'm so used to this life of, of pleasantries and luxuries and self-focus. What do you mean rejoice in trials? Anyone else know what I'm talking about? Is this just me doing a monologue? You're like, you, you had me an alternative, but this doesn't seem very fun. But I think that's the way in. Like if we want the better, we have to deny, wait, if you want the life, you have to die to yourself. But everything is about building up yourself in our culture. Everything about growing big churches is about making it about your needs and your kids' needs and where you are, making it as easy as possible for you to get here and check them in and sit here and make it quick transitions and no awkward moments and all the things that make self a prioritized priority because you are a yelper. That's a word I made up. You yelp. We are a Yelp generation that wants to critique and criticize and give them four stars, three stars. That, that servant should, was a little too late on my water refill. And it was soda water, thank you very much. And you just messed up the whole drink. That's just my issue, right? The particularities of this life make us so focused on ourselves that I've never asked the question, Jesus, what are your expectations of my life? Maybe that's a bad word, expectation. What are your hopes, longings, What's your dream for my life? You see, when G, if you come to that place, then we have to take, um, we have to come to the right Jesus. So let me give you a parable to help frame what he expects of all disciples. You good? You guys good? Okay, well, I lost about half. We can keep going. Jesus told, it's okay, I'm, I'm only expecting 25%, right? According to the parable, like only a quarter of you are good soil today. It's not me, it's Jesus. Jesus says it. You're like, what are you talking about? I have, okay, there's this parable about four different kinds of soils. Like, it doesn't matter, but essentially there's only one soil that's gonna be good soil. And this, the idea is that you'll receive the word. 
You'll take what's spoken in any given moment. You're you're one of the four soils and you'll receive the word and that word will produce an abundant harvest that's 60 or 100 fold, like an astronomical amount of, of, of fruit. And so when I'm preaching, I'm recognizing more and more that there's a group of people here, 25% of you maybe on a good day get it. I'm sorry, that's just the kingdom and the way it works. You gotta ask yourself, am I good soil today? <laughs> am I deprived of nutrients in the kingdom environment I've been living in? We'll get to that in a second. So Jesus tells this parable about his expectations for his followers. Nowhere in scripture can you find a kind of expectation of Christianity that you see today. Kind of this powerless lifestyle that it looks like the world's and says a prayer one day and then goes on living the rest of their life. That's nowhere to be found in scripture. What you see is something far more compelling. It's discipleship, an entire renovated life. And so here's one of the shortest parables in the scripture, Luke chapter six. If you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter six. I want you to memorize this parable of Jesus's expectations. I'm sorry, his hopes and longing, because we don't like expectations. Hopes and longings, although we do like expectations, if they're clearly communicated. You, you, like I thought, have you ever had a relationship with someone else that had unspoken expectations? What does that do to the relationship? Kills the relationship. Most of the conflict with my spouse, my wife, that which will not name, my wife, Alex, um, most are my unspoken expectations. And let me just help you out. If you are carrying around unspoken expectations, there will be all sorts of issues in your relationship, whether it's a roommate, whether it's a spouse, whether it's your kids, you need to recognize. So here's Jesus's spoken expectation for discipleship. Ready? This is a good relational one-on-one. Luke chapter six, verse 39, he says, he also told them this, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. End of story, end of parable. Okay, this is an interesting one. Luke chapter six, he's giving his expectations of what it means to be his disciple. This is his hope and dream. So he gives a nod to the Pharisees, the blind leading the blind. He calls the Pharisees the blind all the time. They're blind guides. He'll say that if you're following one of those Pharisees, you're like following a blind rabbi. They're gonna lead you down a path of destruction. But he says, and this is the key, the student is not above the teacher. And the word student is where we get the word disciple or apprentice. It's more than just sitting in a classroom listening to someone lecture. It is about being someone who is learning to be with their rabbi, become like their rabbi, and to do what their rabbi did. And this is the, the, this is the key. He says, a, a, a disciple is not above the teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like their teacher. Jesus makes this radical point that discipleship, the goal, his hope and dream and expectation for you is that you become like him. Everyone who's fully trained will be like their teacher. His hopes is that as you follow him, your life will permeate his presence on earth. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, holy moly. 
that's the expectation? <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. Talk about unrealistic expectations. No, you're thinking what I need to be like Jesus is total transformation. Anyone else believing that? Can we just get, get it all the awkward moments out? Anyone else see that expectation and say, there's no way on earth I can do that. Can I just get some healthy confections? Great. Only six of us? Seriously? The rest of you are saints permeating the presence and essence of the Messiah and Savior everywhere you go? Praise the Lord. You got to get up here and preach the word. Or I'll just sit next to you and smell like Jesus. That would be amazing. You don't have capacity. You can't do it. This isn't a conversation about like, just read the right book, get some self-help, and you'll become like Jesus. This is about total metamorphosis. Radical transformation from the inside out. This is the expectation of discipleship that you are fully trained and fully transformed. It's not going to be a diet that saves you. It's not going to be some yoga practice that transforms you. It will be a total revival in your soul. And that's what he expects from you. Are you with me, church? No wonder... Nobody wants to be Christian when we look at the kind of discipleship we are telling people to do. We've lowered the bar of discipleship and we, 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 we've properly lowered the entry. Everyone gets to come in, but we don't teach people how to be transformed. We don't give them a process of formation. I want to go to Acts chapter 19. I want to show you something that took place in the scriptures that I find fascinating as we talk about forming, formation, following the ways of Jesus. Discipleship is more than just a conversation on Sundays or, or midweek discussion. It's far more transformational than that. Something happened in Ephesus that was significant to the point where Ephesus eventually becomes the center of the Christian movement a few hundred years after the church was planted. So if you go to Acts chapter 19, and we'll look at verse 8, you see this phrase. Uh, of something that takes place. Now, quick history. Paul goes to Ephesus. He's an apostle. He was a sent one, someone commissioned by God with authority to bring about the kingdom of God and to do the things of Jesus and to, to continue the ministry of God everywhere. And his strategy was to plant churches. So he goes to Ephesus. He finds some disciples. They weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. He corrects their theology. He prays they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then shortly after that, we get this story where it says Paul, verse 8, entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months. So he goes to the Jewish community first, preaches the kingdom of God, and he argues persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Highlight the way, or, or just hold it down and, then and save it for later. Copy and paste it into a note. So Paul left them. And it says he took the people who confessed that Jesus is Lord and showed up to church on Sundays once a week or every three weeks. No, he took the disciples, those who will be fully trained to be like their rabbi with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So this is Paul's strategy. He's trying to evangelize the world. That's his hope, right? His hope is to evangelize the world. And what does he do? He goes to major cities and plants little tiny churches. We're not talking about hundreds. We're not talking about thousands. We're talking about dozens. 
dozens of little people gathering in homes to the point where this movement spreads in a few hundred years and 90% of Ephesus is Christian. So significant that they, they burned the temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. Massive structure. So Paul's strategy is is planting churches. He goes into a city, he proclaims the kingdom of God in synagogues, which is what Jesus did. Demonstrates the kingdom of God, which we read about before this. If you want to read the whole book of Acts, Acts 19, I mean, you'll see that he, he proclaims the kingdom and then he demonstrates the kingdom. And then he takes his disciples and he trains them in the way. Um, and, and so he, this idea is that, that Paul goes and he trains the church in the way of Jesus, you could say. So Romans, the outsiders, looking in on the church, they call the Christian church the way. They don't call it a religion. They call it a way. And this is so important for us to understand. Why was it called the way? Well, let me give you some, some helpful historical understanding. Christianity, in, according to the Roman Empire, wasn't a religion. Religions didn't threaten the Roman Empire. They weren't afraid of religions. They were afraid of philosophy. Philosophy impacted daily decisions, impacted behaviors, impacted and challenged uh, uh, authority. Religions were always enmeshed with empires. Empires used religions to help create order and make sense of their power. And religions partnered with the empire forms of power with festivals and parties and and statues and temples. Um, But this new cult called Christianity wasn't like the rest of the religions that the Romans conquered in different territories. They, They would just conquer a new territory and just say, hey, it's cool that you have your religions. Just add Caesar to the gods, to the list of gods that you worship and continue on your merry way. But the Christians took their phrase adopted by the Romans, Caesar is Lord, and made it say, Jesus is Lord. They stole the branding, if you will, of Caesar and applied it to their movement, symbolically saying, we don't believe that Caesar is Lord. So when you confess Jesus is Lord, you're saying all the other forms of gods and deities are not. This is not some inclusive, pluralistic religion we're a part of. This is the one true creator God who made himself known in human history and has a name. His name is Jesus. He died in human history and rose again from the grave and he lives now seated on the heavenly throne, empowered to rule and conquer the world. And we're gonna take over the world, not through power like you know at Rome, but through self-sacrificial love. And eventually all of the world will be renewed by this kind of love through men and women who call themselves disciples. How we do in church. So Paul goes to Ephesus with find some Christians and he trains them. He's able to change the way they live in the world. They don't just have new schedules. They don't, have, they don't just give a couple of dollars here and there. They have new behaviors, a new mindset. It impacts their body, their sexuality, their way they eat. Their, their whole life is being re- renewed and reformed through this new way, this strategy that's an ancient strategy. It's called discipleship. Paul's strategy was to take pagan worshiping idolaters, live with them in, certain, in a certain way so that they become passionate Jesus disciples. 
Think about that. He shows up to Ephesus, the epicenter of Artemis worship, a very pagan city that had all sorts of rituals and philosophy and worldviews about engaging in the world by defining your identity about uh, supernatural ways of looking out into the world. And they were obsessed with beauty and sexuality. They were obsessed with money. Does that sound familiar? And this ancient primitive culture started to gather daily, started to pray and, and be formed by the way of Jesus to the point where there was a total revival within a year and a half of Paul's landing into that massive city. Isn't that incredible? How did he do it? Power of the Holy Spirit, number one. We talked about that last week. Number two, he had an intentional strategy for what we call spiritual formation. Or better, whole life formation. Paul's strategy was to gather people around him to learn from what he had to teach, but also how he lived. And his life was modeled after the revelation of Christ in his experience. Are you guys with me? So Paul was a rabbi and his strategy was to preach and teach and write letters and go into new communities and model a way of life. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I have these verses up here. Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. Imagine if this is what we do with new Christians. You have someone in your office that wants to come to church. They come to church, they accept Jesus. And then you start walking. You're like, hey, I'm going to help you out. I want to teach you how to follow Jesus. Just follow my example. This is Jesus' expectation of your life. His spoken, realistic expectation, hope, and dream, that that becomes true of you. Paul will say later on, in, uh, earlier in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, therefore I urge you, imitate me. And later, I don't have this up there, verse uh, 17, he says, for this reason I have sent you Timothy. Who's Timothy? He's a disciple of Paul's. Timothy is the, 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 the guy that he leaves in Ephesus. Paul leaves in Ephesus to oversee all the churches. He becomes an apostle himself. Paul is, is not just making disciples in the church. He's making apostolic disciples because Paul was an apostle. And he says, I'm sending Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. His strategy was if he couldn't show up, he sent one of his disciples to show up. And what was the task of one of his disciples? To remind the church of Paul's way of life in Christ. Isn't this inspiring? Now let's just look. Imagine if we had leaders come in and we're like, all right, we're going to put on a conference. But what the conference was, was that you just got to hang out with them in their home. You got to see how they interacted with their, their kids and their spouse. You got to see what it was like when stress comes into the picture. That, that's, that's the model Jesus hopes you adopt as his disciples so that, guess what? The world is renewed. Philippians chapter four, Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Paul gathered people around him to learn from his way of life, which was modeled after Jesus. Paul created an environment where he could take Artemis, worshiping pagan idolaters, and turn them into passionate, devoted Jesus followers. And this environment is what we call today spiritual formation. Spiritual formation, according to Dallas Willard, in the Christian tradition, is a process 
of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. Spiritual formation is your journey of sanctification, transformation into Christ-likeness. And I have to say, the more you become like Jesus, the more you become more like yourself. The, the more you become like Jesus, you don't lose the uniqueness of your identity. You gain the uniqueness of your identity. And this is what we do. We, we're afraid to enter into church. We don't want to be you know, part of this conforming body that doesn't look like Jesus. But what you realize is that the more you follow Jesus, and I'm not talking about an individual journey. That's a whole other conversation. We'll get to community in a second. But the more you intentionally practice the way of Jesus, you, you come under his yoke. And, 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 and yoke... Let me read this. In Matthew chapter um, 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And then he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the first century, rabbis would refer to their teaching, their philosophy of Torah as their yoke. Okay, so what Jesus is essentially saying is take my way of life upon you and it's easy and light. And a yoke is such a weird term, right? One of the um, commentators on Matthew is a guy named Frederick Dale Bruner and he, he essentially says it's a, it's a strange word to give the tired and weary a work instrument. But that's exactly what they need. They don't need a vacation and this is the problem with our world, right? We have a vacation culture. We burn out because we don't know how to do, take on the yoke of Jesus. A, what we need is a new way of doing ordinary life. We can have that mountaintop experiences. I was just uh, gone for a month on vacation, traveling all over Montana, Wyoming. I saw it was so life-giving. The first week was miserable to be back. It was so hard. I'm like, I'm out of here, guys. I can't live in Long Beach anymore. I'm going to live in Jackson. And then I'm like, well, Jackson's very expensive. Okay, I'm going to live in Idaho. No, Idaho is so, I'm like, everywhere we go, it's getting more and more expensive. Everyone's leaving. And what am I doing? I'm trying to escape the ordinary life that has become a burden rather than come to Jesus and say, teach me how to live my life under your way. And I realize I have so much going on in my life that has nothing to do with Jesus's way. And I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about good things. And we're so hurried. We're so busy. We're so distracted. We're trying to watch all the shows. We're trying to read all the news. We're trying to post beautiful selfies. We're trying to do all this stuff and make all that money, get all that money for some future event, do all the things. And Jesus is like, there's only one thing. And until you, until you learn to come to the source and then reorder your way of existence, which is not some like supernatural concept. No, no, no. Like reorder your, your calendar, your, live, your calendar right now. Not to fill it with quiet time, all that, that's important, but to reorder it according to his word, according to his way, to include the things that he actually wants you to be a part of. Because I've been asking, Lord, what, if you were to lead a church today, what would you do? How would you lead it? Would it be a frantic, busy? Would it be focused on all these? You know, not to challenge what we're doing now. But I, I asked that question, how would you schedule your life as a lead pastor? 
you know, you're leading the church. You're the head. I haven't thought about this. Maybe I should ask him the things I should be doing in my job as a pastor. Why? Because there's a lot of books that make it look a lot easier than learning this organic relationship with Jesus. So, so he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Another passage he gives, are you guys good? I got a few more thoughts and we'll get practical. So then he says, so take my yoke upon me. So this way of life, Paul is training you in a way of life. Jesus wants to train you in the way of life. And then there's this passage, which I've been reflecting on a lot because um, we, we do Bible memorization as a family. And there's this one that's really important to me that I want our kids to know and they can repeat it. It's John 14, 6. You know what John 14, 6 says? It's, it's, don't put it up there. Oh, come on. Just kidding. I'm the way... Thank you. I see you. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one. I, Susie, I knew you'd get it. No one comes to the Father except through, except through me, unless you read that. I, Jesus says, I am the way. Hold on. Say real quick. I am the way. Now, if you stop there, what you're going to do is what our culture loves, right? This is what we do. I'm the way. We take on the practices, Right, so we do the yoga, we do the diet, we do the meditation app, we do all the things that can produce. This is what Silicon Valley is marketing to you. Change is only about new habits and practices. So all you got to do is adopt those those way that way to live, and that's not enough. So then it says, "I am the truth," and this is where the church loves to anchor its beliefs. Right, all you got to know is the right things. Right. As long as you believe the right doctrine, as long, you have, as long as you have right theology, then you're good, right? And what does that lead to? Pharisees, legalism. It leads to a life of judgment and critics. So what we have in our current scenario, by the way, is on the left and the right in the political situation, is intolerance because of their ideologies, their truths, marketed against each other, marked against each other. All you have to believe is the right woke thing or all you got to believe and hold to is the right conservative thing and anything outside of this is threatening. So that truth is our fighting point. And Jesus says you can't live with just truth. Truth is important, but you need the way. Jesus is the way and he's the truth. And by the way, it's not the doctrine of Jesus that's truth. It's Jesus himself that is the truth. Right? We don't put our hope in an idea of God. We put our hope in God himself as truth. So, and then in a world that makes your, your emotions and your personal ex- expectation and preferences equal to the authority of scripture, we will fail. Because we live in a world where there is no more truth. In fact, we can argue scientifically different points and say, well, this is science and this is science. We don't have a lens for authoritative absolute truth anymore, except the church does have an anchoring, has an in on capital T truth. It is Jesus Christ himself. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. And he says, I'm the life. And a lot of us would love to focus on the life. We'd love to focus on the byproducts of relationship with Jesus. So yeah, we want the peace, we want the joy, you know, we want the gifts, we want the power, we want the ideas, we want the revelation that, the, that comes from this life with Jesus. But the way, you can't have the life without the truth and the way. You can't have the truth without the life and the way, and you can't have the way without the truth and the life because that is who Jesus sets himself up to be. 
through those things together. And what we've chosen to do in the church is take a couple of those things and market them into a consumer-oriented church and it just falls apart. That's why my friend says, I don't, I'm having a hard time identifying as a Christian. He doesn't say, I am the truth, and any, anyone, as long as you believe the right things about me, you will have the life. He doesn't say, I'm the life, and go on believing, because I'll just bless your dreams, whatever they are. He doesn't say, I'm the, just the practice, because whatever you do will be good. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and they work together for disciples. And I love what Jesus says. He's absolutely inclusive, Right? He invites the worst kinds of people to join him in this revolution. He believes everyone gets to play, but he's also exclusive. He held this tension of inclusivity, welcoming in the worst kinds of sinners to be in his inner circle. And at the same time, he's exclusive, saying, no, not all roads lead to the Father. Only through relationship with me will you access the Life that God intended you to have in the first place. If you want this abundant life, if you want to know why you're really here, Jesus is the only way. Yoga is not the way. Buddhism is not the way. Islam is not the way. Mormonism is not the way. Woke relationships aren't the way. Holding conservative ideology is not the way. Jesus is the way. Your beliefs, your emotions, your experience, your truths are not the truth. Jesus is the truth. In church, we have to understand this. We're at a crisis in this moment. Now, ask the question, what are Jesus' expectations? His expectations are for you to be like him, to permeate his life wherever you go. And how many of you know you need to change? Anyone here need to change? Why is change so hard? Like, you're like, yes, I believe everything you're saying. Yes, Darren, yeah, boom, those are great points. I love it. You're doing like Taibo or something. Yeah. But why is it so hard to change? Well, I want to give you some answers. It's really hard to change. Any habit, any diet, anything you've tried to change, let alone being transformed into Christ's likeness, that's so hard. First of all, it's hard to change because you have habits that have been formed over a lifetime. You're like, I don't want to be distracted anymore. Get in line what are you doing? <laughs> it's habitual. I'm not going to read the, I'm not going to, I'm going to read my Bible when I wake up in the morning. I'm not going to read the news. Grab the phone, news app. You're formed by your habits. Anyone else know what I'm talking about? Number two, you have a worldview, a, a way of looking at, out at the world that has been shaped over a lifetime. Your, your worldview is shaped by the age of seven to nine is what they say. That's when it's set in. And then it's, it's basically minor tweaks here and there along the way. You're being formed by the things you believe and the stories you've been told and all of these things. We're being shaped by those experiences, by those, uh, those, the, those, the teaching, by our families, by tradition. Number three, why is it so hard to change? You have an enemy who hates you and wants to destroy your life. And every inch of growth you have towards Christ-likeness will be contended by the devil and his, his demonic forces that are working against you. This is a biblical worldview. We are living in a contested time where warfare is real, warfare against the children of God. Paul says in Romans, creation eagerly awaits for liberation, essentially, by the children of God, by men and women who choose to be disciples, who are filled with the Holy Spirit and live on mission to the ends of the earth, renewing the cosmos as they go but there's an enemy working. Lastly, you live in a world where the dominant cultural influence, the, the 
the, the narratives and the habits that were, are, they're all pulling and bending you to embody its way of life. In other words, change is hard because you are being discipled or formed by culture. Now, I don't want to talk about culture as like this scary thing, but let's just talk about the world we're living in. We are being shaped and formed. Would you, do you understand this? Every day you wake up, you're being shaped into an image of the culture that you swim in. In other words, culture is a formation machine. And never in history has it been so powerful at forming people into its image. Stay with me. This is such an important point I want to make. Mark Sayers says this. He says, our current Western context deforms our hearts and lives in profoundly destructive ways. Big business, big data, and big porn's ability to reshape our inner world is unparalleled in human history. Therefore, the next great awakening, the next renewal... The coming revival must be centered on our hearts being changed by God. It must begin by replacing the pseudo-Christianity of lifestyle enhancement with spirit-filled faith of biblical Christianity or discipleship, I'll add. If, it must offer the renewal of Christ-likeness to those being deformed by our culture and the deepest parts of their hearts. Every day you wake up, you participate in this world, this online, screens, TV, podcasts, media, school, friends, workplace. There's forces, there's devices, there's companies that are working to change your brain patterns, change your habits, change your behaviors and attitudes and worldview. You can't avoid it. Nothing is neutral. Mark is saying that in this context, we are being shaped by technological industries and big businesses, and it's shaping our inner world like never before. And it, I really believe that we need to understand this. I'm not saying avoid your phone and social media. I'm saying understand its power in shaping you. And, and I kind of feel like a crazy person sometimes because people are like, why are you so obsessed with this? Because I don't, I don't think you realize the crisis we're in. It's like people 50 years ago who were saying smoking kills. And they're like, no, no, it doesn't. Smoking doesn't kill. And then years later, we're like, I cannot believe people were smoking. It kills. Oh my goodness. Look at the science behind it. One day, I think our kids are going to look back and go, I cannot believe you had unrestricted access to the internet like you did. Oh my goodness. I cannot believe you are carrying that thing around, taking photos of everything you do. You, the impact it's had on, on, scientifically on the body and mind and community is devastating. Now here's the thing. We already know this scientifically. Yet we refuse to recognize its impact on our lives. Stay with me for just a moment. Anyone see The Social Dilemma? Documentary on Netflix where it talks, it makes a case for government to regulate social media companies because it's harmful to our freedoms and our lives. Tech companies have the power to change behavior. And the advertisement in a profit economy has the power with precision and accuracy to change your mood and thoughts so that you can consume. This is fact. In fact, there's something out right now called the Facebook files. Anyone read it? Okay, so you go to Wall Street Journal and find this article. I don't have it up there because I put it in last minute. They found out, this is Facebook. They're trying to hide this evidence. Facebook found out 32% of teen girls said that they felt bad about their bodies after being on Instagram. 
March 2020, there was a slide presentation from the internal message board of what happened on Instagram. And the comparison on Instagram can change how young women view and describe themselves. And and I quote, for the past three years, Facebook had been conducting studies into how its photo sharing app affects its million young users. Repeatedly, the company researchers found that Instagram is harmful for a sizable percentage of them, most notably teenage girls. We make body image issues worse for one in three teenage girls. Teens blame Instagram for increased anxiety and depression. Among teens who reported suicidal thoughts, increase of 13% and 6% among Americans, uh, British and American users had a desire to kill themselves after using Instagram. We are facing a crisis in the church. We, I believe, Jesus is wanting to equip us to handle this crisis. To handle this crisis. In the Barna research, check this out. During COVID, there were four new trends of growth happening during COVID. Isn't that exciting? When everything's locked down, there was trends of here's how the church is growing. Check this out. This is from Barna. We're growing in mental health crisis in the church. Increased depression, increased anxiety. There's a growing loneliness crisis in the church. There's a growing uh, relational strains in the church where there's more conflict than ever before. And addictions are on the increase and they're deepening in the church. The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether those who are identified as Christian will become disciples. Galatians chapter five, Paul talks about this kind of person that you become as you engage in a relationship with the Holy Spirit over a long period of time. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me just read that one more time. The fruit of the Spirit. This is not the gifts. This is what grows through living the way of Jesus, living in relationship with God over a long period of time. This is what happens when, this is what what comes out of you. This is what permeates. These are the byproducts of Jesus as your life becomes a disciple. It's the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When I look at the world, what I see is exhaustion, burnout, anxiety, depression, loneliness, anger, compulsive, outrage, lack of compassion or empathy, lack of self-control, escapist behavior, addiction, inability to focus and pay attention, and judgment. And I look at the fruit and I realize each of us have the capacity to bring out the best that this world, the thing that this world needs more, and it's waiting for you if you will follow him. We're being discipled by the world and we have to recognize that this is not neutral ground, that there is, there is a contention that we have and the question is, are you aware of the power that's influencing you, the forces that are bending you into its image and, and at the same time, are you aware of the power that's in you to bring transformation through you, in you and around you? So, Total transformation, it requires more than just accepting Jesus' doctrinal right statements. It's more than just believing and confessing in a moment. It requires a whole new way of existence. It requires form, structure, process, intentionality, 
It requires um, environment for you to grow. It's like, have you ever planted a garden? If you ever wanted to, if you want to plant a garden, let me give you some advice. It's, you got to commit to it, right? If you want fruit, there's a process. You can't just plant some seeds and hope it grows. And that's what we do with our discipleship. I planted a garden during COVID, um, and it was a process, okay? So we had a bunch of rocks, and we had to dig up all the rocks. I, we, I had to dig up all the rocks. And we had to get all the soil in and put the soil in. Then we you know, put some wood around it, and we planted the seeds and lined them up perfectly where the sun was going to be, and then we had to water them often. And then we had some issues. Like, for example, our dog started digging in it. So we had to get rid of the dog's Access. We had to put a big fence around this little garden. We had to protect this thing. Because if we want this to grow, there needs to be some, some boundaries for this organic life to grow. There, there was a process that included soil and sunlight and water and oxygen. But not just that. I found out that the soil matters. You can't just have a four inches of soil. You need more than that. So the rocks that were under some part wouldn't grow because they only have four inches of soil. There was a whole process of discovering what it means to create a process for fruit to grow. And the fruit came and it was amazing. It was a lot of work for like one strawberry. And we rejoiced and we cut it up into four and we ate the fruit of our labor. Animals were jumping over and getting at possums and all the wildlife of Long Beach and raccoons and stray cats, which in our family are mythological creatures who are demonic forces. But that's a whole other conversation. Just kidding. Just kidding. It's true. Um, no, there's, there's a whole science, there's a whole theology of evil of cats, but um, there's, there's not, there's not, you cat people, enjoy your feline infestation at your home. Um, so there's this whole process, and fruit came through a process, and, uh, and it required intentionality and required boundaries, and guess what happened? We went on vacation, and we forgot to set the timer, and it didn't get water, and it died. We had tomato trees and watermelons growing. We had this amazing thing. And then it wasn't watered for 30 days and it died. And guess what I had to do? Uproot all of it. And sometimes the best thing you can do for fruit is to get rid of everything. Get that soil going again and wait for the next season to plant. And maybe that's where you're in. You're in that pruning. Yeah, who wants to pr be pruned? Who wants to be pruned so that you can have more fruit? That seems ridiculous. Let's keep that thing going, baby. Let it grow. If you let it keep growing, guess what happens? No fruit. You die. Literally. If you were a plant, you would die. You need to be prone, pruned. So, Garden Church, we believe one of our key pillars of being centered is not just to believe that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead, although that is important, but we believe we need structure, process, formation, in the way of Jesus, that to transform this world, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded you. Can I just make a quick point? It is okay for babies to cry in this church. I want to make perfectly clear that this mom is here bouncing her baby. She doesn't need to be nervous about this baby saying amen, hallelujah, and baby talk. <laughs> if you don't like it, if you get distracted, go somewhere else. 
I want to be a church that welcomes the little ones even when it's uncomfortable for some of us because I want a church that has little ones to begin with and raises them up to be preachers or pastors or business owners or students or entrepreneurs or moms and dads of their own. It doesn't matter. But we have to be comfortable being family in every stage of life. And that also means permission to grieve when you're grieving and celebrate when you're celebrating and bring all the little ones that you want to bring in. I don't even care. I'm going to keep going and make an illustration out of it. So here we go. We believe that you are called to live the way of Jesus. And there's a hundred different on-ramps for that in your life. Thousands, millions. There's not one cookie-cutter way um, that's going to empower you to be Jesus. So let me give you a list. I asked our, some of our team, how do you follow Jesus as a disciple? So here's my essentials. Here they come. Ready? Write this down. It's not on the screen. Number one, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you've got to confess that, and proclaim that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead. You've got to believe that he is the only way. Some of you have never made that confession and you gotta confess it. You gotta begin to recognize that your woke life or your conservative life or your Buddhism or your yogi practice that was a religion or your Muslim faith or, um, or Islamic faith or your uh, whatever it is, that's not the way Jesus is Lord. Nothing else is Lord. No one else is Lord. He's raised from the dead. Second, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with the Holy Spirit. You cannot possibly be changed without the power of God in your life. You need the Holy Spirit to rest on you, to fill your life, to transform your life. Number three, because I was reading in scriptures for this question, how do I know you are a disciple? Number three, there's no place in scripture where someone confesses that Jesus is Lord and doesn't get baptized. Biblically, I'm realizing, whoa, I've been off. We need to do baptisms way more. Because that is the, the physical demonstration of the internal reality that you will follow Jesus for the rest of your life. So if you believe that Jesus is Lord, you need to be baptized. Next week we're doing baptisms. Get baptized. Come on, people. Sign up. I've been talking to my son. He found out his friend Charlotte's going to get baptized. And he's like, I want to get baptized. I'm like, hold on. You're seven. Almost eight. I got to do some research. I've read three books in the last two weeks on baptism. I have been going every day for the last... All for last week since he said it, so it's going to be two weeks until Sunday, going over baptism with my son, talking about what it means, talking about its symbolism, talking about, is he serious? Is this your faith? Talking through historical accounts of baptism. Telling, I'm like, I want to make sure this is your choice. This isn't some peer pressure thing where it's cool. And he's processing that. He wants to be baptized. I'm like, all right, we'll see. We'll see if we get there by next Sunday. So I don't know. He might, he might not. There's no pressure on him. It's got to be his decision. I'm making it really hard for him. Because in some churches throughout history, it was a year. It took a year of discipleship before you could be baptized. Now, I don't see that in scripture. So I'm going to say, if you believe, you can be baptized. But anyways, that's a whole other conversation. Number four, join a community and commit. You cannot follow Jesus. You cannot be a disciple without intentional community. Full stop. We're going to end the sermon right there. There's no such thing as you, yourself, and Jesus discipleship. It's always in the context of community. And you don't get to pick that community all the time. Can't just cherry pick your best friends to be the people that you do life with in the church because there's a whole family here that you got to work with. So you're called to a community. Join a missional community, join a house church, join a remnant group, I don't care. Join a community, stick with it. And then adopt some new practices, which include, so do one of these or two of these. Read scripture, pray, practice solitude and silence, learn to hear God's voice and obey. Uh, establish a rule of life. We have, we have courses out the wazoo for you to help you Follow Jesus as a disciple. Rule of life. Emotionally healthy. How to read scripture. What else do we got? Foundations course. That's tonight. How to hear God's voice. How to pray. We've got courses for you to grow as a disciple. 
There's so many there. Uh, show hospitality in your home. Serve people regularly. Give generously. Go through the Alpha course. Get, your, get off your phone. Get off social media. These are all ways you can follow Jesus today. I kind of went through that. So I could just text that out to you if you want it. I'll just text my list. Um, I definitely don't have it on there. But essentially, it's, it's, this, it's easy. Go to, the, go to the scriptures and learn what it means to be a disciple because we want you to follow the way of Jesus together. Good? All right, I got some woos. All right, let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church. Thank you.